I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and this week I'll be talking to Gillian Tett, a celebrated journalist from the Financial Times, and also, as we'll hear, an undercover anthropologist. After the global banking crisis hit, the Queen polaxed economists on a trip to the LSE by asking them why nobody had seen the crisis coming. But Gillian stood out from the crowd of financial scribblers by warning it could be on the way. How did she do it? Well, she says on her own reading, which is developed in her new book, that the crucial insights went back to a graduate student trip to remote Tajikistan in the crumbling Soviet Union. Now, Gillian, a warm welcome, but to the uninitiated, it will sound an awfully long way from the goat herding villages of the Tajiks to the trading rooms where the world economy blew up. So tell our listeners where you see the connection. Well, absolutely. And I understand why a lot of people might think that sounds really weird. In fact, during my career as a journalist, I've often had people say to me, gosh, how weird when they hear about my background. Because before I became a financial journalist, and I've been working as one for two and a half, three decades, I was indeed a cultural anthropologist. I did my PhD based in Tajikistan, Soviet Tajikistan, on the borders of Afghanistan, studying Tajik wedding rituals which might sound completely unrelated to derivatives or anything that happens in Wall Street or Washington or the City of London. But the connection is that we're simply all human. All of us, wherever we live and work, have a tendency to cluster in tribes with people like us, to engage in all kinds of rituals and ceremonies and use symbols to affirm our tribal allegiances and to create a shared worldview. There's nothing wrong with that. Cultural assumptions shape everybody and we inherit them from our surroundings. But what I argue in my book is that if we don't think about the cultural assumptions that shape us in ways we don't understand, we don't really understand ourselves at all for good and bad. And if we don't try and understand the cultural assumptions that shape other people and get empathy for them, we have absolutely no chance of understanding what really matters in a globalized world. And the run-up to the great financial crisis is just one example of that, because I used my training in anthropology to deconstruct what the bankers were doing with all their rituals and strange language and social tribes. And that showed me the risks that were developing, which sadly, very few other people saw at the time. 
Fantastic. Um, a, a recurring insight, because there was a, a lot in that answer to, for people to take in of the book and a, a phrase that kind of comes up time and again is make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Could you just dwell on that a little bit? What does that mean? Well, one of the central presets of anthropology is that if you go and immerse yourself in the lives and minds of people who seem different to deliberately embrace a bit of culture shock, you don't just understand how other people work, which is a very worthy thing to do from a moral reason. And I should stress from a practical reason, if you want to protect yourself from risks and get more inspiration and fresh ideas, you also, by immersing yourself in other people's lives, understand yourself better too. Because the Chinese have a wonderful phrase, which is a fish can't see water. None of us can really understand the cultural assumptions that shape us because they're so familiar. So we need to jump out of our fishbowl, go swim with other fish or ask other fish what they think. And then we have a much better chance of seeing water or the things that shape us. And to explain what I mean by that, um, back in 2005, I went to an investment banking conference down on the south of France when I was a financial journalist. And I walked into the hall with all the bankers and I thought, wow, I'm back in Tajikistan. Because the type of ritualistic um, wedding gatherings that I studied in Tajikistan are actually pretty similar to an investment banking conference in the modern world, in the sense that what both events do is gather together a scattered tribe of people, pull them into rituals and ceremonies which allow them to recreate their social ties. The Tajiks do it with dancing and rituals. The bankers do it with PowerPoints and bar meetings. Um, and in coming together, they reaffirm a shared worldview. And the bankers themselves can't see that any more than the Tajiks could. But when I looked at the banking conference with a kind of outsider's perspective, I could see that what you had in 2005 amongst these bankers working in derivatives was a really strong tribal pattern of people who were connected by speaking the same language that no one else understood not Tajik, but banker jargon. Mm. They were in command of this technology, which made them feel very powerful. There wasn't external scrutiny. They had a strong creation mythology about innovation making the financial system better, which was riddled with contradictions, which they couldn't see. And perhaps most importantly, when I looked at their PowerPoints, that great modern ritual, although they kept claiming that finance was all about helping people, borrowers, there wasn't a single face anywhere in their PowerPoints. It was all algorithms and Greek letters. And that reflected a worldview which had come to see finance as being very detached from the real world. They couldn't see the consequences of what they were doing. And that caused them to basically go mad for the whole thing to spin out of control. And they couldn't see it because it was so familiar. That was the world they lived in, they took for granted. So it really took an outsider coming in to actually see the flaws. And I'm not saying I had any special wisdom at all there. What I am saying though, is that unless we embrace a mindset of jumping into each other's worlds, like a Martian, like a child, like an anthropologist and asking fresh questions with fresh eyes, we will forever have a world where technocratic experts tend to be in command of technologies that they alone understand, but which affect us all and where there's a real danger of those experts going mad. So, I mean, um, I think you mentioned in the book the, um, the idea of the emperor's new clothes. And um, I mean, you turning up at this conference with all these people talking about 
CDS squared or whatever the jargon is, and uh, saying, but what what's actually in this glorious tapestry kind of thing is, is like the, the cheeky child saying that of the emperor. There's an amazing French intellectual called Pierre Bourdieu, who was both an anthropologist and sociologist who argued that the way that elites stay in power is not because of what we talk about in everyday life, it's what we don't talk about, social silences, um, or to quote Upton Sinclair, that wonderful novelist, um, it's very hard to get a man to understand if his job depends on not understanding. <laughs> and what that means is that we're all, whether we're bankers, politicians, journalists, financiers, anything else, surrounded every day with a set of cultural assumptions that lead us to ignore large parts of our world, to simply mm. turn our eyes aw away from it, not because we're engaged in a deliberate plot to conceal things, but because it just kind of suits us fine to leave areas of our life swathed in social silence. It's the unchallenged assumptions that really, really matter. And to go back to my fishbowl analogy, the benefit of jumping out of your fishbowl to look at other people's water, if you like, and then come back and look at your own, is that the stuff that you've just been ignoring for ages that's been hidden in plain sight suddenly becomes a lot more visible. And again, to give you examples of that, you know, that applied in the financial world. Um, it applied in the ad tech space in Silicon Valley in the early years of the last decade. It was commonly known by experts that um, ad tech companies were harvesting users' data and using it to create targeted ad campaigns, not just for consumer goods um, purposes, but also for politics. That was known, it was hidden in plain sight for years but it wasn't until the Cambridge Analytica scandal happened that suddenly went, wow, this is going on. And it wasn't a secret, but it had been ignored. Similarly, if you look at the world of epidemiology, I mean, it was commonly known for years by epidemiologists that the world was likely to face a big epidemic, if not pandemic. I wrote a column three years ago after going to the Davos World Economic Forum saying this is the new area of social silence. And yet, because once again, it was geeky and technical and boring and swayed in acronyms, most people just averted their eyes. I mean, the best way to hide anything in plain sight these days is to cover it with acronyms. So my point really is that we need to learn to look into social silence. Mm -hmm. And so um, obviously the implications of that can be quite uh, disruptive things that we as a society are getting very very wrong but it's too convenient for too many people not to clock it. Um, uh, when you look um, around at the moment um, what else do you see that could be um, a, a social silence that we'll wake up to or be forced to wake up to at some point before too long? There's lots and lots of areas I mean you know in no particular order if you're thinking about the medical world antibiotic resistance another classic area of social silence people have been ignoring for ages. Um, you can talk about, a, and there's lots of things in the climate change sector. I mean, as we speak, of course, everyone's fretting about high energy costs. Um, you know, it's been outrageous. It's been a cause of social silence. So there's been so little investment in alternative energy sources for so long. And so little attempts to do something really obvious, like use public sector money to backstop or underwrite private sector investments in what's called blended finance. I won't get geeky, but that's another big area mm. of silence. The world of artificial intelligence um, has lots of social silences. Um, Peter, T um, not Peter Thiel, um, Alex Karp, the CEO 
of a company called Palantir, very controversial big data gathering group and data analytics group, wrote in his um, investor letter last summer when Palantir went public, that it's kind of weird that the entire world has outsourced control and understanding and development of AI to a tiny group of geeks sitting in Silicon Valley and nobody has a clue what they're doing. And they are being asked to make these incredibly important decisions which have big ethical and practical implications. And actually they don't want that responsibility most of the time. But there you have once again, an area of social silence where people are saying, oh, it's so technical and complex, don't understand it, just let the geek get on with it. Um, the implications of rising debt burdens is another area. You know, pensions, slow moving, boring, dull. Um, but the question of whether pension systems are sustainable or not um, is critical, but again, very rarely discussed. I could go on and on, but those are some ideas. Let's just let's just pause on, on, on debt for a minute. I remember you reviewed a few years ago um, David Graeber's book about, um, what was it, 4,000 years of the history of debt or something? 5,000 years. Who's 5, counting? Years. Yeah, okay. And um, basically, you know, he's a radical left-wing, was a radical left-wing guy who was saying, you know, this is always a social construction. There's always um, uh, like lots of um, understandings there about, um, you know, whether it really has to be repaid. I mean, do you think, like, if we look back into the deep history, there's been points where the the, the, the slate has literally been um, wiped clean on debt. Is that something you could imagine happening if, if there's too much quiet on um, debts that aren't sustainable? Well, I wrote a column about the Financial Times about this just a few days ago. Um, what Graeber argued is that there's two ways to create a financial system. You either tether money to something which is in finite limited supply, like gold or anything where you can constrain the supply, um, or you basically base it on something where there is no capacity constraint in terms of how much of it you can create except an individual human um, person. And that's essentially the, the system we have today with central banks. They can create as much money as they want as long as they have some kind of credibility. And he said, whenever you get the second system, there's a tendency for more money to be created indefinitely and with it more debt until you get such stark power imbalances that the system implodes um, if you're not careful in a revolution or whatever. Um, and to counter that in history, sometimes governments have created deliberate safety valves to stop debt piling up to a point where you create, create an implosion. Um, the classic example is Mesopotamia, where they recorded the debts on clay tablets and periodically would literally wipe the slates clean. That's where the English phrase comes from, to wipe away the debts and forgive everyone their debts. Now, it seems impossible to imagine that happening today, um, but the reality is the debt today in the world keeps expanding and expanding. Um, right now, we have about 290 trillion worth of debt everywhere across the world, if you count together public and private sector debt. Um, and that is basically about 350% of global GDP. Um, when we had the 2008 financial crisis, it was about 280% of GDP. So global debt has exploded dramatically, about a third as a proportion of GDP since we had the financial crisis. I won't give you a long lecture about the financial implications of this or ways of getting out of it, although I'm passionately interested in this topic, but it's not clear how governments will ever get out of it by growth alone or austerity. It's going to require either inflation 
or something called financial repression, where you essentially um, use um, bondholders to subsidize the government, i.e. you and me, we give money to the government, or there's gonna be some kind of restructuring or write-offs in some form. So actually, Graeber isn't so mad after all. And the key point I wanna say is that when you start talking about these issues, when you start talking about how do you deal with the social contracts in debt? How do you deal with the power structures and implosions? How do you trust money? You know, and why should say Bitcoin be trusted or not trusted? What are the parallels between that and gold? You immediately enter a realm where actually classic economists with their models aren't that well equipped to come up with answers because this is about social issues, about qualitative issues like trust. Mm. And that's where anthropologists really can offer a valuable voice. So one of the key messages of my book is that we need to combine the perspective of anthropologists who look at social issues like trust with the work that economists do to get a much better way to navigate the world. I mean, I can hear that you're, you're, you're too polite to kind of completely rubbish um, economics, um, but uh, you know, if in something as important as finance, um, but also loads of other goods that are essentially produced at the margin free these days with electronic dissemination and so on. Uh, would you be bold enough to say that when push comes to shove, anthropology is a better guide to the world than economics? I wouldn't say it's a better guide. I say it's a very powerful complementary guide. And um, the problem, you know, I salute what economists have done. I salute what, um, you know, many people in finance have done in terms of creating models to try and understand the world. They are often useful. However, my key point is this, if you rely on a narrow, rigid economic model to navigate the world today, you're a bit like someone walking through a dark wood at night with a compass. And your compass might be technologically brilliant. You don't want to throw it away because it probably tells you roughly where to go. But if you walk through that wood and just look down at that dial all the time, you're going to trip over a tree root or walk into a tree. And you need to understand context. You need to raise your eyes, look up and look around. Because the problem with a model or a balance sheet or a big data set is that they're bounded by the limits of what you put into that model. Everything else is viewed as an externality or a footnote to the corporate accounts. Um, and externalities can sometimes matter enormously, particularly when the world around that model is changing. I mean, think of climate change. You know, environmental issues used to be an externality to um, economist models and a footnote in corporate accounts. Now, no one would dare ignore them. So the real power of anthropology is to provide checks and balances and context for other intellectual tools to, if you like, to offer lateral vision in a world where far too many people are captured with tunnel vision. And I happen to think anthropology is a brilliant um, way to look at the world in that respect. It has flaws as well. I'm not saying that anthropology alone is a magic wand. You know, it tends to be focused on small scale observations, qualitative, often subjective, um, et cetera, et cetera. But it really is the missing piece we need today to understand um, how to navigate the world. And my last point is this, if there was ever a time that we've been reminded of why this matters, it's right now with a pandemic. Because one thing we've learned in COVID-19 is no matter how brilliant your medical science is, no matter how amazing your computer science is, your data science is in terms of tracking COVID-19, you can't beat a pandemic just with medical science or computer science. You need to change people's behaviors, be that to get them to sit and observe a lockdown 
or to actually get vaccinated. And to understand behavior, you need social science, anthropology, sociology, psychology. So in the same way that medical science needs social science, economics, engineering, computer science does too. Um, we've been quite sort of highfalutin so far, and, and we're talking about really big issues like climate change and uh, then the pandemic. But you do kind of um, get into, um, you know, slightly lighter touch subjects, including in the corporate realm, where you were saying you think anthropological insights have been very important in flogging Kit Kats in Japan. Yeah, I tell the story of Kit Kats um, really as a way to illustrate what the slippery issue of culture is all about. People often think that cultures are like boxes with fixed boundaries that you can stack on each other, top of each other, like a hierarchy. You know, I'm French, you're British. My British culture is better than your French culture. You think if you're British, um, that's a natural human instinct. And one of the messages of anthropology today is that actually culture is more like a river. It's constantly moving, however slowly, new streams are coming in, it's changing. And that's a glorious, wonderful thing because we live in a spectrum of cultural difference, not in a rigid taxonomy. And if you want to understand that, just think about the story of Kit Kat because it started life as a British product. Um, the company that made Kit Kats originally was created by a Yorkshireman, a Quaker in the Victorian years. Um, it was sold after World War II to British workers under the tag, have a break, have a Kit Kat, or the best little break in Britain. Um, it was a brown chocolate biscuit. Then it got bought by Nestle, a Swiss company, and sold all over the world. And it was sold to Japan originally as a British product. But isn't there something a bit strange there? Because listening to you, Gillian, I'd sort of think, well, why, why are we in a globalised world? You know, obviously, a local firm in Japan should understand much better what's going to make for a marketable chocolate biscuit rather than a um, British one that's been bought out by uh, some Swiss people. Um, why, why don't we um, buy local more often if, if that's the case? Well, I think it's a question of really recognizing that we live in a world that's both globalized and localized. And we're living in a fascinating moment, um, partly because of the pandemic. Um, you know, our global systems are tied together very tightly by the internet, by supply chains, by airplanes, by all the things that make us into a single global economy. Um, and it's been tied together in a way that which means we're all constantly prone to suffer from contagion risks because shocks or new forces can flash around the world incredibly fast because of how tightly we're integrated, whether that's medical shocks, financial shocks, um, information shocks, um, cyber shocks, you name it. And yet our mutual understanding has not increased. We do not have a contagion of mutual understanding. Um, and on the contrary, in many ways, the pandemic has made us more polarized, more myopic, more focus on the local because we've been physically locked down in one place with people who are exactly like us. And when we've gone into cyberspace, we've often been even more tribal and more prone to tunnel vision because we can customize our experience. And so guess what? We all tend to customize it in a way that's just like us. And so we have this real paradox today where on the one hand, our systems and our leaders are often you know, globally operating a global universe and yet people are experiencing a local. Um, experience. And the question of how you combine that sense of globalization and localization is a real challenge. 
in a good way, you can do that through food um, with a story of something like Kit Kat. Um, but the reality is most of the time, people don't do that and suffer. Let's just close then, um, Gillian, by returning to in and around Tajikistan, which as you already mentioned, is uh, next door pretty much to Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan um, is a country that is in a mess at the moment, and it's a country that's very much being understood through this lens of culture um, and the rather sinister culture of the Taliban in particular um, uh, at the moment. Um, do you think we're getting it right or wrong when it comes to talking about Afghanistan and culture? Well, the story of Afghanistan, which in many ways is quite similar to parts of Tajikistan, um, where I worked as an anthropologist, is really a tragic example of why um, it is very costly to ignore the principles of anthropology. Um, anybody with even a faint knowledge of the culture, history and society of Afghanistan would have really thought twice before charging in as the Americans did after 9-11. Um, I mean, I was actually living in Tajikistan in the years after the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the lessons there were so obvious, but so completely ignored often by the Americans when they rushed in and the allies. Um, and in subsequent years, the allies often did some good things in terms of trying to listen to local cultures and work with local cultures. They also did some very clumsy things. And what was clear in the last year was that there was a real lack of empathy for the plight of ordinary Afghanistan uh, Afghans. Um, there was a real lack in the last few months of what might be called a worm's eye view rather than a bird's eye view of what was going on. And worm's eye view is really what anthropology tries to do, which is to actually put yourself in the minds and lives of other people on the ground. Um, and that applied both to the Afghans who'd worked with the Americans, but also frankly, many of the people who were supporting the Taliban, um, who were often out in the rural areas, uh, but overwhelmingly out in the rural areas, often very angry about being cut out of the, what wealth there was in Afghanistan, very angry at the elitism and snobbishness and, and arrogance of the urban groups that the Americans were supporting. And if you look at what was playing out on the ground in many parts of Afghanistan, it wasn't so much always about a sort of a religious ideological war as a local ethnic war, local regional war, a war about economic resources. Um, and, you know, it really is a story about people being driven in the West by their own incentives, not taking the time or having the willingness to have real empathy for what's happening on the ground and creating tragic consequences that could end up not just harming many, many Afghans, but actually rebounding to the West as well. So, so it's not the case, um, despite your emphasis on culture, it's not the case that you think now Afghanistan is ensnared necessarily forever in a kind of Taliban culture, if you like. It's more that the Taliban culture grew up out of the, 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 the follies of the Western culture. No one should forget, by the way, that the Americans actually armed the Mujahideen initially back all those decades ago. So, um, you know, boundaries and divisions are very slippery in, in, this, um, in, the, in the region. Three quick points to make. Firstly, I know Afghanistan isn't so much a country as a collection of different tribal groups. Um, and so Westerners come in with a Western image of the state get tripped up. Secondly, to talk about the Taliban as a single unified force is completely wrong. Um, they're very split within themselves. Um, and one of the big questions for Afghanistan now is the degree to which they can or cannot paper over those cracks. To talk about Islam is even more of a misnomer because quite apart from the fact that ISIS is a rival to the Taliban, 
Um, you know, there's so many elements and strands of Islam in the region. Um, for example, there's a strand of Islam, Sunni Islam, which is basically focused around Sufism. Um, in Central Asia, there's a strong tradition of interest in the works of Rumi, um, a Persian poet who had a very liberal, tolerant, inclusive attitude towards life. And one of the tragedies is that if only Westerners had been more sympathetic about the different branches of Islam, and maybe could have worked harder to find common ground with elements that they actually had more natural affinity with, like Sufism, we might not be in this world where everything's defined in oppositional terms, i.e. Islam versus the West. Julian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks to all of you too for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. And if you want more of Gillian's insights, her book Anthrovision is out with Random House. Our producer is Sarah Collins. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>